open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 in just a moment. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews, as we noted a couple of weeks ago in our introduction, is uh, considered an epistle, and technically it is, but it is not like the other epistles. Hebrews, rather, is a sermon that has been sent as a letter. It is composed as a sermon. It is structured as a sermon. It is to be delivered as a sermon. And we instinctively understand, even if we cannot always articulate, we instinctively understand the defining characteristic of a sermon. I have never met a teenager who, frustrated with his parents, ever went out to his friends and said, when are they going to get off my case and stop teaching at me? No, he always says, when are they going to stop preaching at me? The lecture you get from mom and dad is a sermon. You might be sitting at the break room at work in the office there, and you might have two different people both espousing the same thing. They might both be articulating their view of the benefits of environmentalism. But one of them does so in an appropriate way, and the other comes off as preachy. We know there's a difference. Can we articulate what it is? But the heart and soul of preaching, if the heart and soul of a sermon is exhortation, it is instruction to do something, it is application. The essence of preaching is here's the information, and on the basis of this information, go and do or don't do. Be or behave accordingly to this information. Sermons differ from other oral communications in the directives they give, the exhortations, the applications, the things they challenge us to do. And this small bit of Hebrews that we're going to take today, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, is all of that. All captured in these verses. It is the very essence of a sermon. It is a command to do something. It is exhortation. These verses are really quite devoid of the other elements of sermon. There's not in here a whole lot of exegesis of scripture. There's not in here. He's done that already and he will do that some more. But in this little section, not a lot of that. There's not in here a lot of illustration. A little hint at one, but not a lot. These six verses are exhortation. Sermons tell us to do something, and these verses are going to tell us one of the things we ought to do. Let's consider now the Word of God, the only infallible rule for faith and for practice, the only thing that is going to tell us what we should do and be absolutely right in it. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house, as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Lord God, open our hearts and minds, our ears and eyes. Let us see and hear what is here in this text. And let it be to us a great encouragement, a great exhortation to obey exactly what we have been commanded. Let us consider Jesus this morning. And in doing so, let us hold fast to the boasting we have in the hope he gives. We pray this in his name. Therefore, holy brothers, I hope that somewhere along the way you have been given the little quip, the little reminder, the little mnemonic device about the importance of the word therefore. But if you have not, here it is. Anytime you encounter the word therefore, you must ask yourself what it is there for. Whenever you see therefore, you have to ask what it is there for. And it's a linking word. It ties what has gone before with what comes after. And it's going to do so in this situation. It's going to link what comes before with what comes after. And what comes immediately after is an astounding two words. Holy brothers. How can we be called holy? How can that word be applied to us? And that's what the therefore is there for. Now, I try to stay ahead in my Sunday school lesson prep by a couple of weeks so that though we were only in Isaiah 2 today, this past week I was actually working on Isaiah 6, which is, of course, perhaps the uh, definitive Bible text if you want to go to one place to talk about the holiness of God, pretty good chance you're going to go to Isaiah 6. So it was really interesting in the Lord's planning of things that I was prepping Isaiah 6 for Sunday school, even as I was prepping Hebrews 3 for this sermon. And I was struck by the picture of holiness in Isaiah 6. That here we have the, the seraphim calling out to each other, bellowing out to each other, adding repetition so as to make the point emphatic. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Such that the foundations of Solomon's temple shook with their bellowing of the holiness of God. And these are creatures who were created to live in the presence of God. Nevertheless, they had to hide themselves from his holiness covering their faces and their feet. A figure of speech, we would say, covering themselves head to toe so as to be protected from the holiness of God. And so what happens to the mere mortal, the sinner Isaiah? Woe to me, I am undone. I'm going to come apart at the scene. My being cannot last in his presence. So how can we be called holy? 
How can the author of Hebrews, who has such a high regard for the Old Testament, who has such a high regard for the Scriptures, how can he take the word of holy and apply it to you and me? And apply it to these brothers back then. And we remind ourselves that this word holy, it gets lost in the English but this word holy is tied up and wrapped up in the idea of sanctuary, sanctum, sanctify. All of these words are related. And the holiness he speaks of here is not a, a, a lived righteousness so much as it is a fact of declaration that has been accomplished by God. When the utensils for worship were set apart for the temple, those that were used in the worship of the temple were made of the same materials as those that were not. They were formed in the same smith's uh, fire. They were shaped with the same hammer. But part of them, some of them, a few of them, were declared holy to the Lord. Why? Because God said, they're to be used for my purposes. They're to be used in my house. They're to be for, the, for my service and my worship. That's the sense of the holiness here. That's what's being set forth here. That we are holy to the Lord, not because we're somehow made of better material than everybody else, but because God has set us apart. God has set us aside for his purposes. God has said, they're going to be used for my worship. They're going to be used in my presence. They're the ones that I am going to make use of. But how is that even possible? And this is where it ties us back. This is the word where the word therefore comes in. How can it be? We go back to chapter 2, verse 17. You see, Christ is the one who was made like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. There's that idea of serving God in his presence. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we saw propitiation last week. I'm not going to go back through all of that. But there it is. That's why he can call us holy brothers. God's attitude toward us has been changed. It's been altered. God has been reconciled to us and we to him. And therefore we can be used by him. Holy brothers. Now some of you here may be thinking to yourself, I don't want to be called a brother. I'm not a boy. I'm not a man. Why does he say holy brothers? And yet the Bible is actually pretty insistent on this point. It's really an interesting thing when you begin to look across the pages of Scripture that it is always this way. In the Old Testament, though many of our translations word it differently now, in the Old Testament it is always the sons of Israel. And the Apostle John, when he wrote his gospel in the opening verses, he said that to all who believe, he, became, he gave the right to become sons of God. So is the Bible being sexist? Are women excluded? What's going on here? 
Well, you see, in our culture, the reason we demand, we are increasingly demanding that we use wider and wider and wider language so as to be inclusive is so that we would recognize distinctions and differences. It's actually done for the express purpose, purpose of noting the distinctions. So that what just a few years ago was LGBTQ is today, and I looked it up this morning to be sure it hadn't changed in the last week, was LGBTQIA2S+. I'm not making this up. I couldn't make this up if I tried. The I is uh, uh, intersex, the A is asexual, and the 2S, plus, the 2S is two souls, and the plus is just in case we've forgotten somebody. You see, the point is that we have to acknowledge every difference. That's exactly why he doesn't say brothers and sisters. This is precisely why he calls everybody in that congregation and everybody in that audience brothers. You see, in that culture, had he said brothers and sisters, they would have said, ah, you're acknowledging there are distinctions. And in that culture, one of those distinctions was women, daughters, couldn't inherit, generally speaking. By calling everyone brothers, he is affirming what Paul said to the Galatians, that in Christ Jesus there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither male nor female. What do we read in our Old Testament passage, our New Testament reading today? That all of us, the, the wall of, of hostility has been torn down, and in the building up of the household of God, there is but one people, the saved, the redeemed, the regenerate, the holy brothers. All of us are lumped together as co-equal inheritors, as those who have legal standing to benefit from all the wealth of our Heavenly Father. Far from being a sexist statement, this is a statement that says, no, 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 don't make the distinctions your earthly mind would be inclined to make. Let's see here everybody. We are holy because God has called us and set us apart. We are all brothers because we are all going to be the inheritors of the good things of God. And you see what he goes on to say? Oh, and by the way, I do want to make this quick note. The world, there is still yet a distinction here. There's a distinction we do need to make. For he goes on at the end of the passage to say, we are talking about all those who hold fast the confidence and boasting in our hope. You see, the world will speak of the brotherhood of all mankind. We are all brothers. Every human being is together a brother or a sister. Well, you say, no, that's definitely not what he's saying. He's saying all those who hold to the confidence and boasting in our hope are brothers. The Bible always makes a distinction between two types of people. There is always the broad way and the narrow way. There are always those who are in the sheep pen and those who are outside of the sheep pen. There are, Jesus said it very plainly, those who are not with us are against us. The distinction is not within us as if there are second-class children of God. But there is a distinction to be made. Which, by the way, is very interesting, for in this text, it is not then being spoken to the unbeliever, to the unregenerate. He's not telling fallen man to consider Jesus. 
For Jesus himself taught Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone consider it. He's saying to us as believers, as those who have been renewed and made alive, go back and ponder Jesus. Go back and consider it. And how is it then? We are holy brothers, co-equal inheritors of the riches of our Heavenly Father. And how were we made that? How are we set apart for his purposes? Under what conditions were the utensils said, these utensils are for my work and service and worship? It is because, he says, we share in a heavenly calling. This word heavenly is going to be important throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter 8, there is a heavenly temple versus the earthly. In chapter 9, a heavenly sacrifice versus the earthly. In chapter 11, a heavenly country versus the earthly. In chapter 12, the heavenly Jerusalem versus the earthly. And in all of these examples, we're going to see consistently that the heavenly is the superior. The heavenly is to be more desired. The heavenly is the one we must must seek and want and, and long for. Why? Because heaven is a place where the presence of God is known more fully, more deeply, more richly. Yes, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But in heaven, his presence is known differently than it's known other places. It's known more richly. It's experienced more fully. It's appreciated more deeply. But that doesn't make heaven a merely spiritual place. For the Enoch, the one who was taken away without dying, is in heaven. Elijah, the one who was whisked away in fiery chariots while dying, is in heaven. Jesus, the one who died but was resurrected in bodily form, is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a place that accommodates the physical. And it will one day become united with the earth. The heaven and the earth will become one. The, 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 the heavenly Jerusalem will descend upon the earth and create the new Jerusalem, and the presence of God will be known here as it is there. But for right now, the heavenly is the place where the presence of God is more fully manifest. And he said, you have been called with a heavenly calling. The presence of God, the manifest existence of his essence and character has called you. You have been called from that place, and you have been called to that place. The sense here is both that the calling went out from heaven, and the calling was to heaven. The calling went out from the presence of God, but it was to the presence of God. Again, set apart wholly for his worship, for his service, for his use. And the calling here, we must understand something of this idea of calling. It is not merely invitation. It is not merely uh, 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 an asking. This word has with it the idea of enactment also. It is what in our systematic theology we may call the effectual call of God. I was going to use one of our teenagers as an illustration, but our dog Tigga saved them last night. For I went to put her out before bed, 
And I called her. And she didn't even move on the end of the sofa. It's raining, Dad. I got no interest in going out there. I called her again. There was nothing, no acknowledgement that I was even speaking. Now, had I opened her treats three rooms away, she had heard that. But she couldn't hear me. I finally, I raised my voice, nothing. I finally had to go over to the end of the sofa and drag Tigga off the sofa, land her on her four feet, and move her to the door. That's the sense of the calling of God. That it not only is an invitation, but it is the enactment and the fulfillment of the invitation. Jesus himself said, no one can come to, uh, come to me unless my father, and all the versions clean this up, but the word really is drag. Unless my father drags him, no one will come to me. This really is the sense here. It's a calling that enacts, that makes it real, that makes it happen. Now to be sure, once I get to get out the door, most nights she wants to be out there. She gets out there, she gets the fresh air, she smells the smells, she realizes there's other dogs she can talk to, and she likes being out there. Sometimes I have to drag her right back in again. You get the sense that our dog's not the most obedient dog in the world. I don't know about that. They say dogs reflect their masters. I don't think that's such good things about me, but anyway. Um, there is this sense that once I have dragged her out there, she's happy to be there. And so it is with our salvation. Once we have been brought to life, once Lazarus was made alive, he was pretty happy to be alive. And yet there is this sense that this calling is accomplished by God. This heavenly calling. So we are uh, 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 holy brothers, siblings of Jesus Christ, heirs of the riches of God. We have been set apart for his good purposes. And it is because we have been called from heaven to heaven. And so it is that he says, in light of all of this, consider Jesus. Ponder him. We are to mull over Jesus. We are to think intentionally about him. We are to set our minds on him with intentionality and purpose. You know, this world is quick to ask us to meditate, to tell us we ought to meditate. But by meditation, it almost always means empty your mind of everything. This is what real meditation ought to look like. Fill your mind with Christ. Think about everything he's done. Ponder all that he is. Be overwhelmed by his person and his work. And what should we consider about him? As we ponder him, as we consider him, what are some of the things we ought to be looking at? Our author has pointed to some specifics. We ought to consider that Jesus was the apostle of our confession. You see it there in like the second or third verse? I, I should have noted it and I didn't. The apostle of our confession. An apostle is one who is sent. More than that, because other people are sent, apostles are sent with power and authority. Apostles are, in, are imbued with the authority and the power of the sender. 
This is why we see Jesus sending out the 12 on a couple of different occasions. And he gives them authority and power to heal, to cast out demons, to preach in his name, to declare things on his behalf. He gives them authority. He says to them, not to you and to me, but to the apostles. He says to them, whoever you forgive on earth will be forgiven, and whoever you do not forgive will not be forgiven. You and I are not imbued with that kind of power and authority, but they were. But our author is saying that Jesus is the apostle. He's the sent one. He's the one that came from God, who came to the earth, who, was, who came with the power and authority of the sender. He came with the power and authority of the Father. And we see Jesus speak that way. We see him talk about, you know, what, whatever I say the Father has said, and I only say what he has said. And whatever power and authority I have here on earth, it belongs to the Father. He's sent by God with the power and authority of God. You know, when I was prepping last week's sermon, I did not properly consider Jesus. For one of the things we touched on last week was why he had to be a man and why he had to be God. And I left out two important things that the author points to here. One of the reasons that he had to be God was so that he could be this definitive apostle. So that he could be the final word of God to man. So that he could be the perfect representative to us. So that he could be the one who shows us with perfect clarity who God is. For the ultimate representative of anyone is himself. The ultimate representative of God is God. And so this definitive apostle had to be God. But we are told that he's not only the apostle of our faith, but he's also the high priest of our confession. Now, as an apostle, he represented the sender, the father. But as a high priest, he represents us back to God. In other words, the mediatorial work of the Christ is a bi-directional work. It goes both ways. Just as he had to be God to be the apostle of God, so he has to be one of us to be our perfect high priest. The God-man had to be man to be man's high priest. Now, there's a great deal more that we could say about this. But our author is going to go on later and say more about this, and so we will defer until then. But as we consider Jesus, we need to consider the role of his deity as the revelation of God to us. And we need to consider the role of his humanity as our representative to God, as the one who goes on our behalf. As the author, as the preacher, as the, the, the writer of Hebrews moves from the apostleship to the priesthood, as he moves from the, the role of the deity to the role of the humanity, he really is reflecting the wider trajectory of the, the sermon so far. Because if you recall, way back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 
you know, he, he said in, in the former days, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. And so we had that picture of his deity, and then it was how he was superior to the angels. And it was an exaltation of his deity. And then in chapter 2, it began to talk about his humanity more and more and more, yet still compared him to the angels. And now here, in chapter 3, he's going to continue to talk about the humanity, that aspect of his being, of his person. But now he's going to begin to compare him to another human being. Now, if we were framing this up for a 21st century American audience, if I were writing this anew to this congregation, my job would be to find who is the definitive American. Of all the Americans there ever have been, who's the one we are all going to go, oh yeah, yes, Americans go, that's the guy. That's the woman. That's the person that we must expel. And I think, I think I'm on safe ground here, despite his many flaws, despite his sins, despite his shortcomings, is there any American who stacks up to George Washington? Is there anybody else who comes close? When you consider the fact that he ran for the highest office in the nation, unopposed, twice, you can't even run for your own party's nomination unopposed nowadays. We can't even agree in a room where we're all the same political party. And he transcended all the divides of the country so that no one even dared to put their name on the ballot against him. He ran unopposed for the presidency twice. Henry Lee famously, in the eulogy he wrote for Washington, famously talked about Washington's transcendence this way. He was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. But perhaps most telling of all was when Washington announced that he would not run for a third term, when he announced his retirement from public life, when he announced that he was going to return to civilian life, when word of that got back to England, King George III, who had been Washington, one of Washington's great enemies, who had once upon a time wanted to hang George Washington, King George III said, if that is true, then he is the greatest human who has ever lived. That's George Washington. Now imagine for a moment that I wanted to introduce to you someone you don't know, and I wanted to tell you how wonderful they are, and I wanted to extol the virtues of this person. And I began to say to you all the positive ways they compared to George Washington. And you would be sitting there going, if even an ounce of that is true, that is one impressive person. That's one amazing individual Scott's talking about. And that's what our author is doing for his congregation, for his audience. For a first century Jew, no one would have surpassed Moses. No one would have been greater in their eyes than Moses. There would never have been a human being who would have exceeded Moses in any aspect, in any way. For unlike, uh, so, you know, like Moses, like Washington, he was the founder of their nation. And like Washington, he was a man who could uh, extol, or could uh, express both humility and strength as needed and appropriate, in an appropriate balance. 
And like Washington, he was a leader who graciously stepped down and stepped aside when God said it was time. But unlike George Washington, Moses was a prophet of God. He not only carried out God's wishes in that providential way, he expressed God's will in, in a direct way. As great as Washington may have been, Moses succeeded him. He was the lawgiver. He was unsurpassed in their eyes. And so our author begins at first to make parallels between Jesus and Moses. Both were faithful, we're told. Now, Moses sinned. Let's be sure about that. He was a murderer. He, he did not circumcise his own sons. Here he was, the lawgiver, the administrator of the covenant, and he didn't apply the covenant sign to his own children. That's a pretty glaring sin. Moses was a sinner. But in the final analysis, God said, nevertheless, he was faithful. Nevertheless, he remained loyal to me. Nevertheless, his hope was always in me. His, his uh, uh, trust was always in me. His faith was always in me. Faithfulness in the scriptures is not a measure of how much you sin or not sin. It's a question of where do you turn in repentance? Where's your hope in the midst of that? This is why the adulterer and murderer, date murderer David, can be called a man after God's own heart. That's the description of Moses. He was faithful. And yet it says that he was faithful as a servant. The comparison begins to become pointed. For our author begins to say that while he was faithful as a servant, Jesus was faithful as his son. And those are on different levels. Those are on different planes. Those are different aspects of obedience, of faithfulness. You see, they fulfill different purposes. Now, at first glance, we might think to ourselves, well, the faithfulness of the servant exceeds that of the son, does it not? After all, the servant is not, you know, genetically connected. The servant isn't, like, you know, uh, obligated by DNA or by last name. And we might think to ourselves, a loyal servant's more impressive than a loyal son. Until we remember the, the nature of their obedience, the nature of their service. For the son gets to represent his father. The son gets to uh, um, conduct business in the places of honor and of glory. The son gets to go into the courts of society and enact business deals on behalf of the estate. The son gets to go into the marketplace and buy and sell for the estate. The son gets to walk around wearing the robes that go along with the wealth. The son gets all the benefits of the last name. The son gets all the glorious duties of the household. While the servant empties chamber pots. And so it is that our author wants us to consider Jesus. Have you thought about the nature of his obedience as a son? He did not merely walk around as one who needed to be glorified and honored 
strutting his stuff as the Son of God in the streets. He did not merely walk around as the one to whom honor is due. This is precisely why we must consider Jesus. Who, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It wasn't to be held on to. It's not that he gave up his deity. It's just that he was willing to take hold of some other things. How many of us, put in the same circumstances, would cling to the who we are? You don't understand. You can't treat me like this. I'm his son. Do you not know who I am? Do you not know my last name? He let go of that. Not of the deity of itself, but of all the claims to being deity. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the point here. Consider that, our author is saying. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was a son, and look what he did. Look what he was willing to give up. Look who he was willing to be. All the wrath of God. You understand that the New Testament actually says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. I mentioned earlier that Servants have to empty chamber pots. The Bible routinely refers to our sin as filth. The one who was God himself. The one who was the Son and had all the rights and privileges thereof. Was faithful as though he was a servant. And all the yuck, all the nasty, all the unbelievable filth of our sin, he bore. And the wrath of Lord God was poured out on him. This is why the author of Hebrews can say that he is surpassing even Moses. As human beings go, not even Moses stands up. For Moses was a servant, a faithful servant, a good servant. But our confession of faith, chapter 16 of our confession of faith, captures this really well, better than I could. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God because of the great disproportion that is between us and God. When we have done all we can, 
We have done but our duty and our unprofitable service. Even in perfect obedience, we would merely accomplish what was expected of us. But the Son by virtue of him doing the unexpected, by virtue of him lowering himself and taking the place of a servant, by virtue of the son being faithful not only as a son, but also as a servant, and by doing that which he had no inherent obligation to do, he became the builder of the house of God. He became the one who was now putting people into that living temple, the church. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And our author has brought us back around. Not to chastise us, not to yell at us, not to tell us, you better hold fast to your hope. But to say, have you considered Jesus? How could you not want to hold him? How could you not want to hang on to somebody who would do that for you? Holy brothers, siblings of Jesus, join heirs with Christ. Those of you who have been called by a heavenly calling, consider. Thank you, Spirit, for this profound word to us, this challenge, this exhortation that we would consider Jesus. Thank you for the, the summary in these short verses of who he is and what he has done, for tying it back to all that's been expressed already in the book of Hebrews. Let us see him with fresh eyes, with heart softened toward who he is and what he has done. And as we consider him, let us hold fast our confession and let us boast of the hope we have in him. We pray this in his name.